Well, good morning again, church. It's good to see all of you here with us this morning. If I haven't had the opportunity to, to meet you yet, my name is Brian. Uh, I'm the, the teaching pastor here at Fusion, and so I have the opportunity most weeks to be up here and um, we'll open the, the Bible and we'll take a look at some of the things that, that it has to say. And we, we like to be very practical here at Fusion City Church. And so our goal is to figure out not just what the Bible says, but how that applies to our life. How we can put some handles on this, this faith that a lot of us are, are journeying in as we try to, to grow to be more and more like Christ, And so that's the, the goal of, of our time together. And, and part of my purpose here is to see if I can kind of walk us through uh, that as, as well as I can. And we're doing that in this series uh, through the, the lens or from the perspective of the book of James. Now, if you don't know a whole lot about the Bible, we're really glad that you're here. Like We, we, we like to be a church where people are, are learning and growing. And so what we learned together last week as we started this series was that James is the half-brother of Jesus uh, prior to uh, writing the book of James prior to even being a believer that his half-brother was the son of God, uh, James was almost very negative towards Jesus. He thought he was a lunatic. There's a recording in scripture where it says that, that Jesus' brothers and sisters thought he was crazy because that's what you think when your brother says he's God, you think he's out of his mind. That's just the way that works. If you have siblings, you know that to be true. Yet after Jesus' resurrection, uh, he, he meets with, he sees his half-brother, and from that point on, James is not only a believer, but an emphatic believer that Jesus is who he says that he is. And as you read the book of James, even if you're not a believer, you got to wrestle with that. Like, if you don't believe that this, this Bible is what it is and that we believe that it is and you don't believe that Jesus is who the Bible says that he is, you got to do something with the half-brother of Jesus thinking that his brother was God. You got to do something with that. For me, that makes this even more uh, affirmed in my life that what I read in Scripture is true. So what we're going to be doing in this series, like I said, is just kind of walking through this book and pulling out some very practical things that we can now apply to our lives. James is a very practical book, and so there's a lot of, a lot of opportunity for us to find some things to apply to our life. And today, what I want us to apply, we'll get to in just a second, but I want to set it up like this. When we hear something that is absolutely ridiculous, a couple of things tend to happen. Sometimes we laugh and then immediately we disregard it as ludicrous. Um, I spend quite a bit of time on social media. I, I like to be on Twitter and Facebook. I'm not so much an Instagram guy, but I have an account. Um, and and one, of my, one of the things that I can kill a lot of time doing, sometimes way too much time, like time that I should be doing something else. Anybody else? Don't raise your hands. I was going to say anybody else have that problem, but I won't make you confess that this morning. Uh, sometimes I waste a little too much time on, on Facebook or on social media. And one of the things that always feels like a, a time vortex for me are, are these list sites like the, the greatest fails ever, like the top 25 whatever of this or the most 25 most interesting things ever accomplished by a human being or stuff like that. Um, and, but there's, there's one in particular that, that tends to, to catch my attention and, and make me pay attention. And it's, it's the one where it's like the, the top 25 most dumb things ever posted on social media. I don't know if you guys have ever run across these. Um, 
But, but, I, but I ran across one just a couple of weeks ago, actually in preparation for this message and thought, oh, this is, this is very applicable to my life because this is true of me. And it was like the top 25 people who shouldn't be on social media, that kind of thing, whatever. Um, now, I was going to put them on the screen, uh, but I stopped short of that because I didn't want to like, publicly do that to, to anybody in case it's either one of you or somebody that you know. Uh, but I, I do want to share with you a couple of my favorites. One of them uh, was from a, a, a girl, lady, not sure about her age. It didn't tell us that, but uh, she said, hey, something to the effect, I don't, I don't, I'm probably misquoting, but something to the effect of just found out I'm pregnant with twins. Does that mean I'll be pregnant for 18 months instead of nine? Right, and then, uh, and then one of the others in the list was, I'm so sick of this nation, Hawaii, here I come. <laughs> now, I think what I like most about those types of posts is they make me feel really good about myself. I, I feel as long, like, if, if I under, see those and I know those to be ridiculous, it makes me feel really good about, about me. Now, I know comparison is a gateway sin to greater things, and, and Jesus is working on me, and I'm trying, he's trying in me to get me to a point where I believe those posts to be tragic instead of hilarious. All right, I'm not there yet, but I am in process. Like Jesus is continuing to, to sanctify me as I interact with this stupidity on social media. But here's what I do when I read those things. I laugh. And then I completely dismiss those statements as ridiculous. Like, it's just, this is the dumbest thing ever. Because that's what we do when faced with a ridiculous statement. So here's what I want to do. I want to make a ridiculous statement. Then I want to show it to you in the book of James and then defend it. Are you ready? All right, here it is. Here, here is my ridiculous statement. When trials come, I will count them as joy because God is good. Now, here's what that means. When struggle comes, when trial comes, we're going to be happy about it. Now I want to read it, and then we'll explain it. All right, here we go. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 8, and then we'll jump down and grab verses 16 and 17. Count it all joy, my brothers. When, not if, but when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. We could use the word perseverance there. And let steadfastness have its full effect. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable 
in all his ways. Verses, and we'll jump down a little bit, 16 and 17. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. So if I could lump all of those verses into one thought, one seemingly ridiculous statement, it would be this. Maybe you need to write it down. When trials come, I will count them as joy because God is good. Now, I want to give you two reasons this morning why I believe that statement right there to be true. So if we back up just a little bit, I want to kind of pick apart these these first couple of verses, verses 2 through 4 of James chapter 1, where James says, count it all joy. Now, let me back a little bit of context here. We talked a little bit about this last week. James is writing to a group of believers who have recently, not very long ago, I'm not exactly sure of the time frame, but less than a few years, have become followers of Jesus, got really excited about some miraculous things they got to witness take place. Then they got to see intense persecution. They got to see a dude stoned to death for believing in Jesus. The persecution, persecution grew to such an extent that they were was in fear for their lives, dispersed throughout the, the, the local area, Jerusalem, Judea, the surrounding area, they're dispersed because of the persecution. They're scattered. They're divided. They're being persecuted. And all this, all this negative stuff, all, the, all of the horrific things that you could imagine would take place in a time like this, if you're familiar with anything about the Bible times culture, this intense persecution is taking place. And James writes a letter to the people in this dispersion, these believers that have been scattered in fear because of the persecution. And he says this, count it all joy, my brothers. Be happy about the persecution. I know life is horrible for you right now, but put a smile on that face. Turn that frown upside down and count it all as joy, my brothers. Now, if I'm reading this letter, I think James just thinks it takes 18 months to deliver twins. (laughs) This fool done lost his mind. Count it all joy. Then he gives us a reason. Verse 3. When you meet trials of various kinds, for you know, you know this, he tells us. This is common knowledge. You know this. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And steadfastness, when it has its full effect, will make you perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So, so James says, when, when, you, when you meet Various trials. See, there's, there's, no, there's no utopia in view here. James isn't, he's not sugarcoating anything. He didn't even say if, hey, maybe if you're going through trials. No, no, no. When, not if, when you meet trials. 
And, and there's, there's, there is this utopia that's coming. There is this, this picture in the mind of the believer that we have a hope in an eternity one day with Christ. But James, James isn't even considering that right now. Because what James is writing this letter, or who James is writing this letter to, are people then and people now who are between the already and the not yet. Like there was a day and time when there was utopia. You can go back and read Genesis 1, Genesis 2. But in a few verses into Genesis 3, something happens and it all changes. And then if you go, oh, that's Genesis, that's the first book in the Bible. If you go over to the end of the book and you read Revelation, which is singular, by the way. It's not Revelations. That's just a pet peeve of mine. Nothing has to do with the message today. Just when you're talking to friends, please don't call it Revelations. There's only one. Anyway, so when you read the book of Revelation, singular, at the end, there's this, this promise of a utopia of this perfect heaven, this new heaven, new earth that's coming. So you got Genesis and then Revelation, but we now, even here, live in between the already and the not yet. We are between Genesis and Revelation. And so James writes to the real man. Like, you gotta, you gotta do something bet- with the being between the already and the not yet. You gotta do something with that. And here's what you do you count it all joy. Let's, let's see if I can be a little more chipper about our current predicament. It may not even be the day of trial, it might be the days of trial the weeks, the season of trial in your life that you're going to encounter. If I push a little further, if I think about the context of the environment we're in right now, for some of you in a room this big, this, this isn't something futuristic. You're in your trial, days, weeks, seasons, of trial. You're in it right now. But here's what I know. You have a better chance of winning a fight that you know is coming than you do of winning one that sneaks up on you. Now, I don't know. I'm not going to ask. Actually, yeah, I will. Any, anybody, yeah, I'm going to ask because just sheer morbid curiosity. Anybody have been in a fist fight? Go ahead. All right. I ain't gonna lie, I'm a little bit surprised that someone, I'm, I'm feeling a little better about my, because my hand was up too. Um, all right, good. Now, now, here's what I know about getting punched in the face. If I'm ready for it, it seems to hurt a whole lot less. Like I can kind of get my hands up, I can kind of be ready. But if I'm standing there hands down and I get sucker punched, it hurts a lot. If you know you're going to be in a fight, you kind of you can kind of ready yourself. Maybe get you know maybe get in your stand, get your you know get your hands up, or you can kind of you know, brace for impact, or, or some of the, all of those things kind of factor in. But when you don't know that there's a fight coming, you're, you're caught off guard. So here's the promise of James. Here's what James is doing. He's letting us know, hey, there's a fight coming. There, there's a trial coming. There's a season of difficulty in your life on its way. Why? Because we live between the already and the not yet. It's, it's a promise. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. Promise. It's a promise. And then James doesn't give any of us a, a way out. Like he, he wants to make sure that all of us understand that this is not a promise for some, but a promise for all. So he used, uses the word various. When you encounter trials of 
various kinds. Well, well, what falls under the category of various? Well, everything. Does, does a busted up marriage fall under the category of various? Yeah. Does like a, a kid losing their ever-loving mind kind of wilding out and being crazy? Does, like, does, does troublesome children fall under the category of various? Yeah. Does trouble at work, does financial trouble, does boyfriends and girlfriends, does teachers and students, like, do, do all of those difficult interactions fall under the category of various? Yeah, they're all there. Now, James doesn't give any of us an out. When you, and when you meet trials of various kinds, and everything kind of fits under that, count every trial as joy because they are all for the same purposes. The testing, the trial of your faith is producing something. There's an end goal. There's a result that God is after in your trial. And so let me give you, let me give you two of them. And if, you wanna, if you're a note taker, this will be great stuff to talk about in your connect group later this week. Um, but number one, you can write this down. Two reasons for joy in trials. Number one, trials are a pathway to maturity. Trials are a pathway to maturity. Now, if we even just take this out of the context of spirituality altogether. We just talk in general terms about life, your life. Have you ever gotten really good at anything without failing a few times on the way? Have you ever mastered anything without a few scraped knees, without a few cuts or bruises here and there? Have you ever learned to do anything physical without messing it up a couple of times on the way? Have you ever learned anything? Have you ever solved a math problem without getting the wrong answer a few times first when you're learning how to do a new function or whatever? Yeah, this is true for all of us. Like every, our maturity, our growth, the things that we become proficient in, we do so through the process of, listen to this, trial and what? And error. You got to mess it up a few times before you get it right, typically. So why would we think that spirituality is any different? As God tries to grow and mature and shape us as followers of him, guess what? Guess what he puts in our path along the way to help us grow and mature? Trial. He puts trials there. And you know what happens in trials a lot of time? Error. Error happens. We get it wrong. We say something, we do something, we tell somebody, we, we do something wrong. But that trial serves a purpose. There's, there's a great quote from um, a theologian named A.W. Tozer. And, and this is something that I just recently found and was made aware of. And I think it's so pertinent to, to this discussion He's a lot smarter than me, so he writes a little more eloquently than I do. But A.W. Tozer said this. He said, the fallow or the unplanted, the, the untouched field, the fallow field is smug, contented, protected from the shock of the plow and the agitation of the harrow or, or being broken up. Such a field, as it lies year after year, becomes a familiar landmark to the crow and the blue jay. 
safe and undisturbed. It sprawls lazily in the sunshine. The picture of sleepy contentment. Sounds nice, doesn't it? Lazy, sleepy contentment. But he goes on. But it's paying a terrible price for its tranquility. Never does it see the miracle of growth. Never does it feel the motions of mounting life, nor see the wonders of bursting seed, nor the beauty of ripening grain. Fruit it can never know because it is afraid of the plow and the harrow. In direct opposite to this, the cultivated field has yielded itself to the adventure of living. The protecting fence has opened to admit the plow, and the plow has come as plows always come, practical, cruel, businesslike, and in a hurry. Peace has been shattered by the shouting farmer and the rattle of machinery. The field has felt the travail of change. It has been upset, turned over, bruised, and broken, but its reward come hard upon its labors. The seed shoots up into the daylight, its miracle of life, curious, exploring the new world above it. All over the field, the hand of God is at work in the age-old and ever-renewed service of creation. New things are born to grow, mature, consummate the grand prophecy latent in the seed when it entered the ground. Nature's wonders follow the plow. The trials that enter our life are carving out for us the path for God to make something great of you so that you can make much of him. I want to say that one again. Uh, It's not on the screen, but you might want to write it down. Our trials are carving out a path for God to make something great of you so that you can make much of him. God is glorified when we come through a trial and are better on the other side of it and we have a story to tell. We just talked a lot about storytellers in our, our last series and this just harkens back to that as it approaches and enters my mind. Number two, the second reason that we can have joy in trials. Number two, Trials remind me of my need for God. Trials remind me of my need for him. Let me make a wager. If we were, I don't know, if we were playing some Texas Hold'em together this morning, I'm going to push all my chips in on this bet. You ready? Here you go. Let me tell you what I know about you. All right? Because I, I know what about me. And I'm just willing to bet you're probably the same. Your prayers are much 
more desperate and intense and urgent and passionate when things are not going well than when they are. Am I wrong? That's okay. You can shake your heads no. I already know the answer. I'm all in on this. You pray way more passionately when things are going wrong than when things are going right. We all do. When trials come, this is what God is doing. You can't get past that without me. I, you're, you've probably heard this. Um, this, is, to me, sounds like a ludicrous statement. God will never put more on you than you can handle. Anybody ever heard that? False. 100% lie. God will absolutely put more on you than you can handle. Especially, here's where it gets really fun. You should become a believer because this is true. Especially if you're a Christ follower. God will absolutely put more on you than you can handle when you become a follower of Christ. That's not a marketing strategy for coming into the church. I'm just going to tell you right now. If we're trying to lead people to Jesus today, that's not what you start with. Come on, be a follower of Jesus. He'll make it harder for you. But it's true. Why? Because trials remind us of our need for him. And he will put more on you than you can handle because it will drive you right back to his feet. Here's what's awesome about being at his feet. All that stuff that's too much for you to handle is nothing for him. The psalmist said, restore to me the joy of my salvation. That that psalm was written on the back end of the worst hideous thing that could have been accomplished. And he said, restore to me the joy of my salvation. In other words, in my salvation is all that I need. Horrific things have happened. I've done terrible things. Terrible things have happened as a result. And here's what I need. I need the joy of knowing that I belong to my heavenly father who created, who sustains, who ordains and orchestrates the days of my life. And here's what trials do. They get the focus off of you and your ability to fix or handle anything. And it puts your focus on the only one who can. Our trials remind us of our need for him because we understand that we are not guaranteed prosperity. That every good thing that we have is from him. Verses 16 and 17 we read them a minute ago. Let's, let's reread them together. He, James says, don't be deceived. Don't, don't be confused. Don't, don't kid yourself. Don't be deceived. My dear brothers and sisters, every good and perfect gift, that's every. In the Greek, it means every. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting Shadows, every good and perfect gift. About a decade or so ago now, 
God helped remind me of this in a very, very real way about shifting our perspective to understand that every good thing is a gift. We shouldn't expect it. There's no guarantee for prosperity in our lives. And I've shared this story before, but I I thought it was very applicable to today. My wife and I, we waited um, five or six years into our marriage to start trying to have kids. And we just thought, you know, we're two young, healthy people. You know, it should be no problem. And for about two years, maybe a little more, two years, two and a half years, um, we were unable to conceive. We just couldn't. We, we did the tests and the doctors and the practice. <laughs> that, that part wasn't too bad. Um, <laughs> but we couldn't. We were, we were unsuccessful. And then we did. We, we, we went and they, they, they gave my wife Erin some medicine. I don't remember what it's called because I'm a guy and I don't remember that kind of stuff. Um, doesn't matter, but we, we, we got pregnant. We were able to conceive. We were so excited. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the elation in the Duncan household? Two and a half years of nothing and all of a sudden, finally. And then we, we took a trip. We were out of town. She started not feeling well. And then some other symptoms and things come up and we got kind of scared. So we came home from the trip a little early, um, went to the doctor the next day, and come to find out, we lost it. It was gone. And um, let me tell you, my, let me tell you how, what I was processing through in this. Here I was, serving the church. I've been in church my whole life. Been a follower since I was a kid. I'm now I'm, I'm on staff at a church leading God's people. My wife is a college-educated school teacher. Like, she went to school to learn how to raise, like how to teach kids stuff. And so here I am, Mr. Preacher, actually I think Minister of Music guy at the time. And, and we got my wife who's this, like, knows everything more than you need to know about how to teach kids stuff or whatever. And we tried and we love each other. We're a good happily married couple most of the time. Like we're this good couple. Like we're, we're, we're good godly people and God gave us a baby and then he took it away. Meanwhile, I had a relative that was having kids left and right and trying to give them away, having his mom raise one of them. I mean, I shook my fist at God, and I, I don't know if you've ever cussed when you've prayed, but I have. I was so angry. And this is what God taught me. Every good and perfect thing is a gift. If Aaron and I would have delivered that first child, the one that we lost, it wouldn't have been a gift. Not in my mind. Because I deserved a kid. Look at me, preacher boy, teacher girl. 
We deserve a kid. But my perspective changed because of a trial, because of a struggle. And now we, we, we've got two little girls now. And I absolutely love them with everything that I can because they're a gift. From my good and perfect heaven, most days they feel like a gift. They're, they're, <laughs> they're a gift from my good and perfect heavenly father. I don't deserve them, but I have them. Because he, he's a good father who, 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 gave, who gave us a good gift. Now, in addition to this radical change in perspective for me and, and my wife, we now have a unique perspective when it comes talking to other couples struggling with infertility because dang two and a half years y'all and we have a unique perspective when it comes to to ministering to and to counseling with couples that have that have lost children in in pregnancy and what a what a tremendous opportunity that that we have now because of our trial. Because God put something in our path to grow us, to mature us, and to remind us that every good and perfect thing is from him. I don't know how many of you have a scar. Anybody, how many scars? Anybody got, anybody got, all right, just about all of us in the room have some scars. I don't have a whole lot, but I could tell you about every single one of them. Scars are a reminder. Scars are a reminder of intense pain because not just your average cut leaves a scar. Scars are reminders of incredible pain, but the evidence of healing. And so as we kind of close out my time talking with you this morning, here's what I would love to see each and every one of us do this morning. All of us have struggled in, in some kind of way. All of us have some kind of and I'll, we'll do the air quote thing. All of us have some kind of scar. Some of us have relational scars. Some of us have some, some marital scars. Some of us have some financial scars where there was a time where there was intense pain and there's been some healing and there's been... And here's the cool thing about scars. Is they give us a story to tell. And here's the story of every scar there was a time where intense pain happened but look at the evidence of healing that has taken place 
It's a story. It's a scar story. In the Marine Corps, we used to say chicks dig scars. Because there's always a cool story that goes along with scars. And if we are going to continue to be the, the, the light to the world that God has called us to be, then we should be sharing the stories of our scars. That time where I was down and out, that time where I had relational trouble, that time where I had financial trouble, that time where I had uh, trouble at work with my employer or my employees, or that time at school where I couldn't seem to get along and I couldn't get ahead and I was struggling. But, but look at me now. And maybe you're even still in the struggle. Listen to me. There, there are better days ahead. Because God is still a good God who gives good gifts and who loves his children. And there may be more on you right now than you can handle. And I'll remind you again of what Jesus said. In this world, you will have trouble. But there's a promise that follows that promise. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. We can clap for that. So here's my, here's my challenge. Here's, here's the handles. Here's the, the practical application for you to walk out of here today with. And you got to tell your scar story. Whatever you've been through, and all of us have been through something, who could your story of healing encourage? I don't know who that is, but I got a feeling that you do. And if you don't, figure it out. Your story's worth telling, and it's certainly worth hearing. How encouraging could your struggle and overcoming be to somebody else. So as we think about that and as we try to live that out this week, here's what I want to do. I want to pray for you. So if you would please just just bow with me and let's ask God to empower us this week to make significant change and impact for him. Father, this is my hope. That all of us right now, as, as we listen, as we've, we've read today in the book of James, the role and purpose of struggle in our lives. God, my, my hope is that you already are beginning to form within our minds. Each and every single time that we've seen you produce healing where there has been hurt. And as we think through that, God, this is, this is my hope. This is, this is my prayer, God, that it wouldn't just be for us. I pray that it would be for us, that, that we would remember, that we would recognize your presence and your power in our lives to change and to heal that which has been hurt. But God, almost simultaneously, as you remind us of your providence, as you remind us of your presence, as you remind us of your power, that God, we would already begin to be thinking about how we can tell the story of your goodness and grace and mercy and healing and love to a world that desperately needs to know. 
they have a good and perfect heavenly father who loves them and who wants to heal that which has been hurt. So God, would you embolden us give us confidence to trust that our trial wasn't for for nothing but that it has a purpose that it can bring glory to you and healing to those that are hurting God make us a light give us a story put your words in our mouth that we may proclaim the greatness of the God who has called us to be his sons and his daughters and who has empowered us to be change makers in this world. God is all for your glory, for your story, because we believe you to be the hope of the world. We thank you that we can be part of telling your story because we have a relationship with you bought through the cross of your son, Jesus. It's in his name I pray, amen.